0: Force that. Rogers has got an intercept here. He's 50 meters to the try line. The chaser's coming. They won't get him. Matt Rogers scores an intercept tie check. for the Australians. <laughs> Welcome to the Blood Bin, Rogers Sports Management's elite athlete podcast. We're pulling no punches here as we go blow for blow with some of the top athletes and up-and-coming athletes in Australia.
1: I'm sitting here with Australian cycling royalty Robbie McEwen, three-times green jersey winner in the Tour de France. Huge achievement. Two-time Aussie road champion. Well, actually three times you mentioned. So, uh, well,
0: I saw, sort of three. I, I won it uh, in a year before I turned pro, so I didn't actually qualify to win the pro title, but I, right. I won the race. Um, like like so when Aaron
1: Baddeley won the Australian Open in golf as an amateur. He didn't get the trophy, but he won – yeah,
0: so winnings, winning, wins no, a win. Sure. So call it, call it, three. call it three.
1: We'll call it three, four-time criterium Australian criterium champion, or I, I think, maybe five.
0: Yeah, maybe five could be six. I'm Let's not just sure. Keep I lost, them on. I lost Let's count. Just keep the them older on. I get, the more it's going to be. I will have won it 28 times by yeah, the time the older, I do my last interview. The life. older
1: I get, the better I get too. <laughs> don't don't worry about that. But uh, two, 12 Tour de France's, 12 stage wins in the Tour de France, 12 stage wins in the Giro Giro d'Italia, the the Tour of Italy. Um, Many many wins throughout your career, 170 plus victories, professional victories. That is
0: an enormous achievement. Um, where did it all begin? Uh, on the BMX bike, just around Daisy Hill where I grew up. Um, when we were growing up in the 80s or late 70s, that's sort of when BMX started to emerge. And um, we used to go down in our sort of dragster style bikes and go down to the where someone had you know dumped a bunch of dirt and kids had been riding over it. That became the local jumps. And we we're down there on you know the bikes that we had at the time. And BMX, hardly anyone had one. Um, and then it really caught on and we just we wanted to be a part of it. And we went to the local track. We, we had a go. Um, we joined the club, got all the gear and, and started racing from when I was about, I think I was eight and a half. Yeah, and right. I just absolutely hooked. Yeah, right. In the BMX side of things. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, everything about it. The For me, I always loved riding my bike and doing jumps and, you know, going as fast as I could. But then put it in a, you know, you got a number plate on, you're on the start gate. You got seven other kids next to, you and you got to beat them all. I I thrived on it. I loved
1: and, it. And I got to ask, did BMX Bandits have anything to do with it? Because that was a huge movie back when when I was a kid. And and you're not you're not much older than me, so I, I dare say you would have watched that. Am movie. I older than
0: you? Are you serious? <laughs> you wouldn't say it. Yeah, no, you, you wouldn't were, say you, were, you,
1: were, you probably
0: don't look it, but
1: yeah, probably, but you probably you haven't it, been
0: beaten up for your whole life. Like it, I had bit, <laughs> it had a bit to do with the motivation. Of BMX Bandits. I mean, we were we were already racing at that point. And the the stuff that was going on, and it was sort of kind of similar, but it wasn't real BMX racing. And then there was a bit, but uh, yeah, it 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 made us that bit more motivated. Like, right. like, look how important our sport is. There's a movie about
1: it. Yeah, right. So Nicole Kidman, you've you motivated someone else into into being a world champion. Well done, <laughs> um, mate. I, I I started riding with you when I met you many years ago, and um, I've I don't think I've ever suffered. Like I've suffered on a bike. I just I, f- I feel like when you're hurting, it feels like someone's grabbing you from the inside and wringing out your intestines and your lungs, and it's just like the pain is something unique. And I didn't expect it.
0: Um, is that how you feel when you race? Uh, I've, I've definitely had races like that because, like anyone, it doesn't matter how fit or unfit you are, if you push yourself to your to your limit, you're going to feel like that. And I've had plenty of days I feel like that. I've had more of them since I've been retired because. I used to, you know, you'd race and sometimes you'd do a 200K race and you try your hardest but you recover so quick and you can deal with so much physically that you can get off and go, oh, that was actually okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tired but that was good. And then, you know, post-racing career, I'd go out and do a long ride, like a charity ride for instance. And we, I remember once for CareFlight we rode from Gold Coast to Toowoomba, 260K. I did that. It was a massive day know <laughs> That's why I said we. <laughs> yeah. And I, I was still pretty fit. Then I'm like, that was okay. But then you fast forward another couple of years later – a ride like that, there's only 170, I felt like I'd been run over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I that didn't like let on to anyone. I'm like, no, no, that was that was good. Yeah, good, that day was good day out, good day out. I'm fine. like, oh, I'm busted. Yeah. Because you, you you carry a bit of fitness and strength for a few years after you retire and then it sort of ebbs away. If you don't keep training, It's it's gone and you just feel like anybody else and you, know, you get off, you're uncomfortable, your neck hurts, your shoulders hurt, even your, your hands from being on the bars, sitting on the seat for that long, you... You just you're a, you're pretty buckled up, and it, yeah. it it's amazing how fast that leaves you. You think, geez, it seems like yesterday I was pretty fit. and Now I'm not.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it it yeah, it's it's hard to gain
1: and easy to lose. Mm. That's for sure, uh, mate. Road cycling, it's not a, it wasn't a huge sport. I mean, it's it's grown dramatically in the last twenty years. It wasn't a huge sport when you decided to take it on as a profession. What was the catalyst to that?
0: Yeah, it was a pretty niche sport back then, but being on the BMX, it was already riding a bike, so it wasn't probably a a massive jump. And I'd heard of some kids out of BMX going across and trying track racing because it's, you know, the short, high-octane stuff, and they were really suited to it and doing quite well. And then uh, a mate of mine who used to race BMX with, Darren Smith, who's from the Gold Coast, uh, he crossed over and started cycling at about the age of 14 or 15, and he he had really big success. He's one of the best juniors in the country. Um, was doing really, really well and I remember sort of hearing about what he was doing and, you know, I'd seen when I was a little kid, Commonwealth Games, 1982, saw Kenrick Tucker on the velodrome at the Common Games winning the sprint. I mean, the, the Rockhampton rocket with his gigantic <laughs> thighs, it was just so impressive and I, I thought one day I'd like to give that a go and, you know, whenever there was a velodrome near a race that we did, we'd jump on, and have a whiz around, see how quick we could go. So it was always in my mind that I wouldn't mind trying out you know, racing on the track or riding on the track just to feel how fast it is. Yeah. And I came to a point where I did the World Championships in 89 when I was 17 and it felt about as far as BMX was going to go for me. The next sort of step was trying to turn pro and go into the US where you could actually do it as a pro. But I was only 17 and racing grown men of, you know, 24, 25, another league. And I I just was not ready for that and I, I sort of felt like, I've done what there is for me in BMX and I – I just went for a change of direction. I had a break. I actually started. I started going to the gym every single day. I ended up in a bodybuilding competition. <laughs> you did um, not. for about three or four months. Yeah, I got second. <laughs> I got a trophy and everything. Come on, yeah. This, I, this no, you, true, I know you might be. <laughs> I was this, huge. <laughs> I must this, have weighed seventy three kilos. Is this
1: a scoop? <laughs> is, is this a scoop to <laughs> the, the
0: people blood know? Bin? <laughs> my my schoolmates still take the piss on me for it to this day. My little shiny purple trunks. Oh wow! But uh, mad six pack. And, yeah, uh, yeah won a trophy. Lean, nice. Won a trophy. Big guns. <laughs> that's
1: impressive.
0: But uh, but uh, but uh, straight after that I'm like, this is not for me. I mean the the, the tanning, the the little tiny right. trunks, I'm like, no, that, that's not me. And so I went to slightly bigger trunks but still <laughs> tight in the Lycra and started having to go at cycling and, and just loved it straight away. Yeah. On the track, on the road. And someone had told me because I, I thought, I want to race on the track. And they said, if you want to be any good at it, you've got to get a road bike and build your fitness up a little bit. So I did that and – I just, I love being out on the road and being able to turn the big gears on a road bike, you know, tailwind and do a sprint. You could do 70k an hour. I thought, this is awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was twice as quick as I'd go on a BMX.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it is a good feeling with the wind in the hair and flying down. I just don't like going uphill. That's-, that's No, uh, that's I'm not sure anybody does. <laughs> no. Some a, just do it quicker. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. Mate, Um, now I've read your book, and an amazing book, and one of the things that, um you know I, I guess you know I, I focus on with my kids and and you know I'm sure many parents do of, of, of young kids who are trying to achieve in elite sport and the kids that we look after is about what, what does it take to succeed you know and and I know you, you your dad was pretty hard on you as a as a as a mentor and a coach when you were younger
0: yeah h- hard in terms of um, he put a, the responsibility on us if we wanted to do it yeah. um, and then came up with, you know, he said, if we're going to spend all this money travelling to nationals in Perth and Tassie and Alice Springs and everywhere around the country, he said, you, we want to get there in the best possible shape to give yourself a chance. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just letting yourself down and, and I'm wasting hard-earned money. Yeah. We're like, yeah, fair enough. Like, and I, I loved training. I loved training as a kid. Yeah, like give me something to do. I was if it was swimming carnival coming up at school. I was six o'clock in the morning at home in our ten meter pool doing four hundred laps. Yeah, right. um, I'd go. I'd go run ten k runs getting ready for school cross country, and for BMX was the same. I'd be doing sprints up the road till I spewed. Um, we dad came up with this thing uh, we called it stepping. So it was like we had a stack of bricks out the back yeah, of the house. I remember, and they're about I oh, don't know, probably two foot. 60 centimetres, something like that, and it'd be two full cordial bottles, so two litre bottles filled with water, and you had one in each hand, and you'd be right, left, and then back down. So up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, and you do it for like three-minute blocks. Yeah. And yeah, you know, heart rate of 180. When you're a kid, your heart's just going, brrr, <laughs> but just flat out. So heaps of stepping, and then I, then I you know, bought myself a – I'd worked since I was a kid delivering pamphlets and uh, Hungry Jacks at a servo. So, you know, I put my money, went into equipment and training. I bought a, a home gym. I bought bits for my bikes to be faster, to be better. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I just – everything was about that. My whole life was just about training to be able to win. That's yep. all I wanted to do. Yeah. I think that,
1: um, I guess, embodies what it takes to be successful, I, I think, in any field. But, you know, people sometimes – they question or they wonder, I wonder how he got that good or I wonder, and, you know, you telling that story I think is is a perfect analogy of why you were able to achieve what you achieved. Did you see it when you were a kid as different?
0: Uh, I, I knew that not everybody was doing it and I didn't understand sometimes why people weren't doing it because I, I, I loved it and I knew if I did it, the result I was going to get, yep. m- most likely I was going to be in the first few um, and it's one of those things and you, you know yourself and a lot of people who end up being pro in whatever sport they're in that you love it so much that nothing's a chore, nothing's a sacrifice, like not going to parties or not going out. I mean you still did all that, yeah. I know that. And, you know, maybe you could have been even better. <laughs> no, no but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's sacrifice. You don't go to certain things because you yeah. go, no, because I'm, I'm going to train or I'm going to go and do another yeah. race or – and that was my mentality the whole time, it, it felt like a reward that I could do more. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think yeah. you're right. And, and I think the minute I see a young person who's on a pathway wince at the thought of having to do more work, I sort of – in the back of my mind, I think, I'm mm, not going to make it.
0: No, I don't really want it.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. you got to want it like yeah. more than anything really. Yeah. And, and and it, brought, it sort of borderlines on obsession, would you agree?
0: Oh, easily, yeah, yeah. And it's – I mean, for me, I've, I've actually been thinking about it a little bit sort of lately, post career. Um, you, you, you become, sometimes to your detriment, you become really selfish too. Mm. You don't feel like you're doing that at the time because it's just you're so focused. Yeah. You just do not see anything else around you. Blinkers on, and that's that's something I've been actually consciously trying to work on within myself. To think to myself, you're no longer a pro sportsman. Don't, don't Don't try and day. try and God find a more open more. mindset. Yeah, yeah. A more open to um other people and their needs. And because yeah. you you can actually get bogged in your your own obsession and it, it becomes sort of who you are with that focusing on yourself self self. I, yeah. I've had to try and pull myself out of that.
1: Yeah, I, I think definitely um as a professional athlete, there is I mean, everything for me personally when I was playing was about the week leading up to the game, it was about oh, my whole life encompassing around me, my body being right for that moment where I had to perform. Then it was recover, recover, and then go again. But I, but I, I I was chatting with a with Craig Alexander, Crowey, the world champion Ironman, and he and he told me he said, you know, I hear so many people say that our sport's selfish or that you know professional athletes are selfish. I, I see it as I'm setting a great example for my kids of what it takes to achieve. Yeah. And and I, I I agreed. I'm like, yeah, you're right. Actually, I, I feel like we do do that.
0: Yeah. You set a good example, but then there's there's I mean, there's always two sides to a story yeah. because you, if you ask the other people, and you, I've heard it from people who have had parents uh, who were you know, fantastic sports people, really successful, and completely driven, and setting a really good example of work ethic to their kids, just forgetting and to be a parent, and, and then their kids go, <laughs> there could have been a little bit more parenting there, yeah. and and it, and and it is. That's the the balancing act yeah. that's the most difficult thing. The flip side. Yeah. Yeah. Mate,
1: you're, you're a 17-year-old. You're at the BMX World Champs or Australian Championships, and, and to, to make money you've got to go overseas. But you chose to jump on a road bike and go the other way uh, to Europe, not to the US, um, to cycle in a sport that I, I dare say back then and even now um, outsiders from Europe are frowned upon or looked on differently to – the way that, um, you know, the Belgian cyclists or the French cyclists or the Italian cyclists are looked upon, when you went over there to try and
0: make it, did they just roll out the red carpet? I'm sure they didn't. No, no, they didn't. And I mean, there were some pioneers over the years. I mean, you go right back into the, the, the 30s, had Hubert Opperman, they, those guys, Snowy Munro and blokes like that, they went over there on a boat to go and ride the Tour de France. They were on three and a half weeks on a boat, that no then. running laps of the deck or they had really basic sort of rollers that they could ride the bike on for a bit but um, three and a half weeks of almost no training while they're on a boat to get to the Tour de France but then you had you know as you go through the years and uh, you had then really I guess the first big name Phil Anderson back in the 80s and then yep. Alan Piper Neil Stevens and then it sort of really picked up as the Australian Institute of Sport uh, was formed um, that became a real pathway for riders like myself to get that international experience, get the exposure in Europe with the Australian national team, and it was off the back of that that then the current generation who are pros and even guys like myself who are already retired, we've all gone through that system pretty much, yep. um, and it became then so well-known amongst the European team directors, they were trying to pick out Aussie riders out of those squads. But when you know you go back a few years before that, you you're flat out getting a run anywhere you had to know someone who knew someone who owed someone a favor right. and then get you in the team and if you performed really well you might be a chance even if you were better than 90% of the squad Didn't matter. if you were in France and you weren't French you weren't a big shot of getting a spot yeah but then that that sort of all changed to through uh, the AIS program and the Australian national teams going overseas and just you know blokes winning left right and center and the team directors over there the big managers knowing that what system you were coming out of, they knew it was a reliable system. It wasn't a drug fueled system, for example, to put it bluntly. So they knew we're getting quality.
1: Yeah, right. And we know we can work with this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so it became not easy to get a spot, but you had a platform that people were were already looking at then to to pick riders out of.
1: So you went over in 94 as a Mm. youngster. Um, you didn't turn pro till '96. What was that, what were those two years like? Was that with the Australian team riding yeah. and, and doing bits and pieces? Yeah, that's with
0: the Aussie team. It was a lot of fun. I mean, went over there, never been to Europe, so you know, suitcase and a bike and get <laughs> over there. And with our first race, we 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 landed in Germany, drove across to where we stayed in Austria for a couple of days, and then we we're off to the Czech Republic to ride uh, a race called the Peace Race. It was like amateur World Cup stage race, so over seven or eight days. And, you know, all the things of you know, driving through there, but the borders were still shut. You had to get visas at the border and it was sort of the the iron curtain pretty yeah, much yeah. still, um, like in, in those days. Well, there were no open borders back no, then. No, no, you had to stop everywhere. And and there, there was a, and you know, three hours at the border trying to get visas. Got in there and it, you, it was a bit overwhelming. You see all these national teams, and, you know, the, the Germans and the Danes and the French and the Swiss and whatever else, and – Never done an international race before. By the end of that week, I'd won three stages. Wow. And my teammates are going, you are going pro. You're good. I was You're like, set, settle down. <laughs> I mean, this, well, I mean, it was, yeah, it was good to win them, but you know, it's just a, it's just a yeah. the peace. Race. They're going, J- just the peace race, mate. Do you know what it is? And then I sort of started doing a bit of research and went, holy shit. This is a bit of a big deal. Yeah, right. Um, went to the very next race, the Tour of Holland, fell off on the second day, nearly broke my back, and I was out of the race. Went it's crashing back to earth, yeah, literally. Yeah. Right and on. and then it took it took a, a while to get going again that season. Well, that's that's the thing with
1: with cycling. I mean, for, for the for the layman who doesn't follow the sport, you know, you've got the Tour de France, maybe the Giro that they know, the, the Tour of Italy, but there's so many more big races in Europe that you know many don't know about, like the Paru Bay and the you know.
0: Uh, yeah, the Flanders, big, big one-day classics. Yeah,
1: yeah. They're, they're they're huge over there,
0: aren't they? Yeah, I mean, if you you talk millions, about,
1: millions of people if, watch those races. If you
0: talk about the Tour of Flanders, it's a one-day race in in April over the, you know the, all the cobble climbs in the Flanders region, um, and Belgium is not completely flat for those listening. Big right. parts of it are the west is is and the north is. You go down in the southeast to where they in the French speaking part it was really hilly, and in the Flanders region in, in East Flanders, it's it's hilly. It's really up and down, lots of cobble climbs. And that race, the only thing you could compare it to to make <coughs> pardon me, people understand is it's like the Melbourne Cup. Right. So so that's not because we're all the size of jockeys, but, <laughs> but th- that's how popular it is. I mean, that it's the race that stops a nation. It really is. Yeah. And there's millions of people along the roadside and millions more watching on TV. Yeah. It's it's insane. And it's such a buzz to ride because the, the crowd's just heaving it's you know you think MCG with a 100,000 people and it's big you you ride along a road and there's 100,000 people per per 20k
1: yeah and they just stretch the whole length the of whole, the the whole the whole way yeah, on insane. on on
0: the climbs they're 10 and 20 and 30 deep yeah screaming their lungs out and it's it's really really good it's a great atmosphere
1: so you turn pro in 96 you go to a dutch team now that's rubber bank I believe yep is that each team have you know there's a, there's a, a national flavor to that team um, how do do the, do the teams differ in communication do you have to learn how to speak Dutch do, does everyone speak English or you know I assume
0: that not every writer speaks, English. No, and a lot of teams have have sort of multiple languages they'll use to get by, and it's funny now, most of the teams will have English as their main language because there's such a spread of nationalities and it becomes the the common one. But, uh, you know, go back into the 90s and you'd you'd have a much more national flavour to each team, and still now you have a – the Belgian lotto team still has mostly Belgian riders but a fair smattering of, of internationals. Yeah. Um, when I went to Rabobank in 96, a Dutch team, mostly Dutch riders, handful of Belgians, a few others, a, a Dane, a Russian, a couple of Aussies. And the good thing about being in a Dutch team is they all speak English really, really well. It's like yeah. their second language. They learn it at school. Everybody's fluent in English, but it really, really helps if you can communicate in their home language. Yeah. And I, I learned Dutch. I picked it up as I went along and and got pretty good at it pretty quickly to the point of, you know, after a few years of, I was fluent in Dutch. Yeah. Um, and it really did help to assimilate into the team, to have that trust of your teammates that they see that you're making an effort yep. to be one of the team, yep. to really fit in. Yeah. And it, it, it certainly does help.
1: Yeah. As a sprinter um, – you're, it's, a, it's a pretty polarizing part of the sport. You, sprinters are aggressive; they're fiery. Uh, you're a pretty fiery rider. Did you have any any big runnings in those early days when you were trying to, you know, make your mark? Because that could that could unsettle a young rider.
0: Yeah, I got myself disqualified a few times by being a little bit too fiery. I and mean, for me, and I've told this to young riders I've worked with, young sprinters coming coming in, you've you've got to make your mark pretty quickly. You've got to establish yourself in the pecking order. You might not be at the top, but you've got to ride like you're at the top, or like you're, you're due to be at the top. And I, I came in, and you know, I, there's not much of me, but I'd, I could throw my weight around on a bike. Yeah, um, I could, I could fight above my division <laughs> yeah. on, a, on when it comes <laughs> to, to bike it. riding. Yeah. And you know, for the for the sprint, because you're going at such high speeds, and you you think about the aerodynamics, the the slipstreaming is so so important. So position is everything, like yeah. real estate, and you've got to. You've got to earn it. You've got to fight for it. You've got to lay it on the line. So I'd, I'd be up there, and from my BMX background, you know, a, a shoulder here, an elbow there, a, a head onto someone and, and push them out the road. If the other person hadn't sort of grown up doing that and was a bit uneasy, boom, I had them. I had you the had wheel. The I was into the position, and, and I'd tell guys, that's what you got to do. You, but once you do it, you'll get a bit of leeway, you know, you, you you do it and they're like, he can he can fight, hard. I'm not going to fight him because it's exhausting because you're always a bit out in the wind yeah, and back right. in, so the other one backs off. But if you fight your way in, it's one thing about fighting your way in, but if you can't back it up with a decent sprint and a good result, then yeah. so if you're going to go out there and fight and then go backwards and just get in everyone's way, there's no way you're getting let in anymore. The boat no respect, or you'll fight lose, lose all respect. You've lost everyone. Yeah. so you it's this one thing about establishing yourself but you've got to be able to back it up with the speed yeah. and, and win races and and fortunately I was I was doing that I and I I think at one point I got a bit of a reputation for pushing around a bit push and shove I was like this is great because now they all know yeah, yeah. and I I hardly ever got taken on yeah right only by a couple but they were the geez, they were good battles I bet I bet I mean you rode.
1: Uh, who who were you, who were your big rivals back in those days? I mean, Cipollini and yep. the like and Eric Sabel, I mean, Tom Isabel, Steele, Steele yeah, and
0: then, then Tom Bonin, Tor yep. Hushoff, Alessandro Pataki, um but Oscar like, Oscar Freire.
1: That's 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 like the the cream of the yeah. of sprinting. Yeah, when you case. look
0: through their results and you go like, "How did I ever get any results from racing against all those yeah. blokes?" And they they say the same. You, you race against really really tough people to beat. Yeah, but that's what makes your victories so much better. Yeah, when you can you know you see a photo, or you see the results sheet, and it, it goes if it says you know McEwen, Cipollini, Pataki at yeah. the Giro d'Italia, it doesn't get any better. Yeah, no, when no. Chippo won forty two stages there 42. in total. I read that in his yeah. career. <laughs> I and mean, he was the king of the Giro. Yeah, uh, he beat me at the World Championships in 2002. He was first; yeah. so I was second. But um, it's it's those sort of victories when you see that, and yeah. you got a photo of that, you go, "Yeah, that was a good yeah. one."
1: Tell me about uh, an event like the Tour de France. When you arrive, it's a three week event. Um, do you rock up to an event like that in peak fitness, or do you have to have some room to grow in that race? Because I I, I can imagine like you you could almost it's, it's almost like a pre-season training camp, yeah. three weeks. And if you if you rock up, like, peaking right then.
0: If you're at 100%, there's one way you can go. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> so, you're not getting any better.
1: So how do you manage your body for for an event like that? I mean, it's
0: it's insane. Depends on your goals and what type of rider you are. So you, you've got to come in at, at near peak and, and just hope you can hold it all the way through. But some do come in... A little underdone? Just a tiny bit underdone. I mean, we're only talking a few percent. Yeah, yeah. But at least they can maybe just improve that couple of percent as it goes on rather than go the other way. So general classification contenders, the guys riding for the yellow jersey based on time added together, accumulated over each stage, they can come in very slightly underdone and you know, make their way through the initial, the first week. It's usually a bit flatter, not too many critical stages for them, no no big mountain stages. There might be a time trial at the end of the first week so they can sort of almost ease their way into it where for a guy like me for the sprinters most of your chances to win come in the first week you might have out of the first seven days you might have five flat stages that's five winning opportunities so you're not coming in undercooked points are critical you are going you're yeah. at 100 percent right at the start you try and go bang 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 the, the ideal thing is you can win as soon as possible because it's pressure off if you're going for the green jersey, you've, you've built up big points. You need to score in all of those. So you need to be at your best and then hang on for grim death, and that's what makes it even harder because well, the, the really hard stages are still yeah. to come and you're feeling cooked. Well, this is the thing, and, and what a lot of
1: people don't realise is it's not just start and then finish and then start the next day. When you get into those mountain stages, which is not your strength, you're, you're, you're racing for points in, in, in the sprints, you have to finish within 10% of the winner's time on that day, even if you're climbing up Alpe d'Huez or, you know, whatever climbs they are, which are enormous, uh, how important is it to have a team around you to support you through those stages?
0: Yeah, it can be really important. I and mean, I've done a few of them on my own, but I've, I've done a number of them where I've really relied on teammates because when you're climbing a mountain, you can sort of – you can only go your speed and someone around you is no more than moral support because yeah. they can't make you go quicker – once you get over the top and you get down on the, onto a descent, especially if it's more a gradual descent or you're coming into the long valley roads, that's where your, your teammates are worth their weight in gold. They drive you, you can, you can sit in the wheel, you can sit in the slipstream, you can swap the work on the front, and, you know, with a few of you, you're a lot faster than riding on your own. And if you didn't have guys – if I didn't have guys sometimes wait for me to ride with me, I wouldn't have made it on time. Because as you said, there's a percentage every day, depending on the terrain and the length of the stage and the average speed of the winner – they calculate the time cut, which was in a mountain stage. You'll often be around fourteen to sixteen percent of the winner's time. Right. Rule of thumb: you've got about forty-five minutes, which sounds like a lot. Oh, 45 minutes behind! Jeez, that's a. Geez, the stages quick. go for like seven hours. They, don't yeah, they go, yeah, they, they can go that long, and so you've you've. But the easy calculation is, if, when you're hearing that the winner's crossing the line, you need to be underneath the ten k to go banner. Right. If you're not inside 10K to go on a mountain stage and they've crossed the line, you're in trouble. Yeah, okay. Because you, you calculate 15K an hour while you're climbing, Yeah. that's four minutes a kilometre, 10K, 40 yep. minutes, you're starting to play with fire. So if you're inside 10, you go, okay, if I'm just holding reasonable tempo, I'll make it. Yeah. Oh, geez, we've had some close ones.
1: Oh, I bet. I bet. And they're pretty brutal?
0: Oh, it, It's ridiculous. So you, you're just – because it's not just one mountain. You you'll have a mountain stage with four or five big climbs. Now three of them will be they'll take you an hour and ten minutes to do that one mountain, and you, right. you descend down for twenty k. You hit the next one. You do the same again. Wow. So it's a it's a day of just putting yourself right at the limit of not not your absolute red line limit because yeah. you can only do that for a short distance. But a, a, you you've got to calculate your limit you can do for five hours. Yeah. This is how hard I can ride for five hours. It's hard to know, yeah, because you you're also conscious of I can't lose too much time, so you've got to push yourself, and you're teetering on the edge of blowing yourself up. That's where you have got to be.
1: And what are the Tour de France officials like in terms of like if you're coming down the straight and you're ten seconds behind the time, they go, oh, "We'll just let him through," or they're is brutal. it just they just shut the curtain? They're, they're,
0: they're brutal. They're, they're like. You're out. you're out unless they can make you're an exception they can yeah, maybe <laughs> there, there, there can be exceptional circumstances if you've had an, an incident if you've had a bad, a puncher a bad or something crash or something yeah, like right. that that's that's and you've taken a long time to get a new bike and it's put you a long way behind you've been dealing with the medics cuz you don't i mean yeah you can get treated roadside or on the road but a lot of stuff there's just no time to lose so if you can possibly get up off the road if you've had a stack you get back on the bike and you go and you assess the damage as you as you go unless something's broken you know straight away i'm out but um you go along the road and then the, the medics come up and they'll do an inspection they'll start cleaning stuff off spraying you with you know the disinfectant stuff for your wounds wrapping you in bandages and while you're riding while you're riding Hard, holding onto the car yeah you can you can you hold, hold on to the medic's treated. car for, but they intend to start going really slow Right. So you'd actually be quicker just riding, so you're not really getting the advantage and you can't hold on all the way up a mountain and say, oh, yeah. just uh, look at my elbow, can yeah. you? Oh, I must have skinned it, can you? <laughs> no, you don't get to do that. So, yeah. But it's, it's just the, the race waits for no man, yeah, so yeah. it just keeps going and – You've got to decide pretty quickly. Like, can I keep riding?
1: And tell me, um, it, it seems like an amazing party, the Tour de France, in all the towns that it visits. But one of the one of the things that just looks phenomenal is it is a Dutch corner on uh, on no, Alpe d'Huez. Yeah,
0: they're, that, they're they're up just... there pissed from two days to go. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, and and
1: mate, they run out on the. I mean, I, I watched that event, and I just think this is so dangerous. Uh, have you ever had any incidents with? With crowd jumping in the way? Yeah, I've
0: I've had little ones. I mean, I used to say most of the time when I was in the mountain stages, by the time I got there, the people were all clapped out. They're already (laughs) walking back down the mountain or they're sitting in their picnic chairs because they've been there for hours seeing others and, you know, I was in the last group coming through. But, no, the enthusiasm there, like on Dutch Corner, it doesn't matter if you're first or last, they're going absolutely bananas. Um, Same thing goes for the the fans from the Basque country. When you're down in the Pyrenees, you get a lot of Basque fans because it's only a short drive for them. And they're unreal. They yep. cheer for you know, first to last. The intensity's wild. Yep. There's flares going off and flags and people jumping around and running next to you. And, but yeah, you do sometimes get a, get yep. a bump. Or I've never been knocked off in that situation yep. in the mountains, but I have had a couple of incidents actually in the sprints, like really near the finish of flat stages. Um, not in the Tour de France, but um, in in other races. I got once a, a really big uh, SLR, SLR camera. On the arm from someone hanging over the barriers trying to take a photo. Oh, you I was full sprint, seventy k an hour. Hit me on the arm. I had this hematoma that came up like a boiled egg on my arm. Did it knock you off? Didn't knock me off. Only just. Goodbye, N- another one I had in France was some someone leaning over the barriers, sort of cheering and waving their arms. Hit me straight in the head. Again, seventy-one <laughs> k an hour. Hit me right in the melon. It it sort of sent my head, head whipping back. Helmet was all skew if glasses were on the sideways. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. I, I kept I kept a hold of the handlebars, but I went back that hard that one of my feet came out of the pedals that knocked me sideways, and unfortunately for the bloke next to me, I sort of fell
1: straight into him onto him, him and yeah. he
0: ended up he- holding me up. But that it, obviously it ruined my race. It ended up ruining his race, and yeah. neither of us finished on the podium. Yeah. We're at that moment we we're in second and third, and we we're only. Sixty meters to go. Yeah. So, but it was that was a really really close one, and I had a bit of a headache for yeah. a while after that.
1: Now there you know, th- through the era that you rode, uh, you know, cycling went through its controversies. Um, what was it like in the peloton, riding with the likes of you know a Marco Pantani or a Lance Armstrong, and, th- and these guys that are just so such dominant figures in the sport that seem to con- be real c- controlling. Um, dictator, dictators, so to speak. What was it like in those moments?
0: Yeah. Well, that's what Lance was was like. He he sort of treated the peloton as his his own kingdom, and he'd say what's what, and he'd you know what's dictate what happens along with his team or riding on the front. And then, that, uh, Marco Pitani was quite different. He was just sort of happy go lucky, cruise along, get me to the mountains, and he just did his thing uphill, yeah. and he didn't say much. Yeah. Um he was. a pretty cool character. He was a, a cool character. A character he was a pirate. pretty cool character. But in terms of what it was like then in the peloton, I mean, you you knew at the time there was stuff going on. You knew guys were were doping. But what do you what do you say? You yeah. you, you, you got no proof. Yeah, but you know. Yeah, because you hear stuff and you yeah. hear you hear say Your blokes who are in the team let something slip, for example, and you just you know and you go in. And I went into my first Tour de France, 97. I thought, I'm, I'm going well. I'm ready for this. I'll have a crack at winning a stage here. I'm, I'm in good form. And then I got there and was just all day long, 50k an hour, no slower, pinned on the side of the road, very slight crosswind. I was nearly in tears it was that hard. Yeah. I couldn't believe what, like, what was going on. How, how can we be riding this fast? For so long. Day? I'd never done it before. Yeah. And I finally we got into about the last 8 or 10k and I was just, my legs were screaming. I was just hanging on for grim death. And then there was a big crash, and it went all across the road, blocked the road. I was, I was behind it, so you know, on the brakes, and you stop, foot out, and I was, I was sort of like, oh, thank Christ for that, because <laughs> yeah. I was sort of happy that something happened that I could just stop the pain. Yeah. Um. And and it just went on throughout the whole race. Just struggled to make it. I made it to Paris, but just yeah, like so many days with, just just inside the time limit, just battling to try and get a result, and uh, it was it was a real eye opener, but. We, didn't you win the? You won
1: the sprint in Paris. Not, not that year. Oh, ninety nine. No, won the I, in Paris. I had to wait
0: till ninety nine. My third Tour de France, tour last de France. stage of my third Tour, having never won a stage, I finally jagged one after sixty two attempts. And the biggest <laughs> stage, probably the biggest
1: sprint stage, you know, on the Champs Elysees. Yeah. Um, must have been pretty exciting for you.
0: Yeah, the, the one you've got to work the hardest to get because it's the, one of the survivors. I mean, some people say, oh, you know, the world championship of the sprinters, but obviously they're not all there because not everybody can finish the Tour. Yeah. For example, Cipollini, spoke about before, never finished the Tour de France. He yeah. won a dozen stages there. Yeah. But always in the first sort of five or six days and then he'd mind, step out. out and go on holiday and yeah. go lay on a beach. Yeah. Probably more clever than we were. At, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, enjoyed it. <laughs> but um, his time. not everybody makes it there. But it, that's why the, the Champs Elysees so such a big one because you've got to suffer so bad just to make it there, and then get it right on the day. And it's a it's a surreal place to win. It's yeah, you know, it's the Super Bowl for sprinters. It's yep. you know, call it what you want. It's the the Wimbledon, the Masters. It's, it's yeah, it's one it's of a, those it's moments. It's yeah. Um. So
1: 2002, first green jersey um how did you feel going into that race and what was different about you why uh, did you win it in 2002 was it experience? did you get stronger what did you learn about yourself that enabled you to win it in 2002
0: i'd, I'd built a fair bit of experience just by racing the tour it was my fifth tour to sixth tour de france can't remember no, it might have been the f- no, fifth one yep um so I'd built a lot of experience in the tour of just how to survive the tour, how to just regulate myself tempo wise of what I had to do when to survive the race and also what I had to do to win stages and I'd I'd already won a stage, so I knew what to do. I'd been but that year, 02, I came into the season like never before. I was just in the form of my life. You know, sometimes you just you don't quite know why. I mean, you work hard like you have every other preseason, but everything just clicks. And your timing's right on everything. Everything, your your whole bio rhythms, yep. the way when the races are, the the day you're having a good day. The worst thing you can have is the best day of your life, and you're out training. Yeah, you want to have that the a day. You you're in. Yeah, I've had a few. Of those. It's it's like me when I go to <laughs> golf and I'm hitting them so flush on At the, the range. range. <laughs> We've all been there. So, so, mate, but that was like. Was but your year? I mean, yeah, you, 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 that's you yeah. Hit, that's the year. I you was came hitting a r- yeah. I was hitting range balls on the course. Yeah. that's what it was like. Yeah. That's, that's how I felt. I was just couldn't miss. I was flushing it all year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just I was in such good form, and and I, and I started off winning, so heaps of confidence. Yeah, and then everybody else around you, all your competitors, said like, "Jeez, he's flying," mm. and. And it's, you you and get you more can, leeway, you get more spaces. They're all intimidated. Yeah, Their yeah. confidence is shot because mm. they know I'm lining up against him and I know he's going well yeah. and they're already half beaten. Yeah. And I just – I had this thing through that season too. I never overdid it through the season. So I said I'd have a patch of really good form but instead of just milking it out until I was properly tired and needed a break, I'd win a race and stick to my plan and so say, now I'm having a little rest a week like, a, 10 like days a good horse easy. out to spell yeah. into the paddock, have a race. So, yeah. so I was having a spell fresh. and I said, I'm going to have a spell then. Boom, spell, come back. Yep. One race to just get the muscles going again. Boom, start winning again. Do that for six weeks, another spell. And it just was like clockwork. And I just went through the season and and that it just gave me so much confidence about what I was doing and what I was going to do when I stepped back into racing. Yeah. I feel like as soon as I come back, I'm going to win again. Yeah, and then, then, wow. then you do, and it just and it builds and builds. The confidence was sky high, and I was just, I just absolute peak. I was 30 years old as as an athlete, an endurance athlete. I felt like I'd really hit my physical peak. Yeah, and just everything was happening. I had, we didn't have the best lead out team, so guys to to pull into the sprint, like make a a train with a slipstream yeah. on the back of. We didn't have the best one. We had really good guys at placing me where I needed to be. On the back of the team who did have the best train, and then I could do my job there as a sprinter. Like if you know, like a Tom
1: Bonan or a Eric Zabel or someone has, they've got a great train leading in. It, it, if and you don't, you, you must. Do, do they try to stop you from getting onto the back of them? Is they it-
0: they do. They can sometimes. They might dedicate a guy to then sit behind their sprinter and act like a sweeper and try and keep people off it. Yep. But then you come up short because you haven't got that guy you need to get right. within range because the speed's got to be so high. You, you sort of end up needing everybody if you sacrifice one as a sweeper, you'll come up short on the actual lead out. And so they just they go, okay, it is what it is. We'll get our guy to where he needs to be, and then he shouldn't get beaten. But I love them because they were predictable. If they always did the same thing like okay I know where I got to be yeah and then you know, get in that slipstream go with it and use their sprinter as basically my lead out man and try and just and that was my the best thing about my the type of sprinter I was is instead of going like long range I'd be really nippy over a short distance I could come out of the wheel out of the slipstream and if they were already doing 70k an hour I could do 71 and a half for about 130 meters. Yeah, but it was enough to gain a bike length and a millimeter. Yeah, and that's all you need. And winning in a photo finish, yeah. and I won a lot, a lot of races like that. Yeah, um, by just playing to my own strength, yeah. off the back of knowing what they were going to do because they did the same thing every time. Mm. And they, I loved that that they were predictable, and they hated me because I was unpredictable. Yeah, <laughs> because sometimes I would be in the wheel and, and nip out and pass them right on the line, but sometimes if if the the road was right, that the gradient. The wind direction, something happens, things propped. I'd I'd come from the back and go, just go early, but I could I could accelerate so hard that I'd go and nobody could get my slipstream. I'd get a jump and I would get a few lengths.
1: Get that few meters that you needed,
0: and they couldn't catch me anymore. So I used to do different things. So they're so always they in two predict, minds. They couldn't and, predict what you were going to do. Yeah. So I mean, I, I know a couple of my rivals have said over the years, like that I was the hardest one to race because they never knew what I was going to do. Well, I, I didn't know what I was going to do, so they well, couldn't. Yeah.
1: Well, that's how I played footy too. People said, "I I, I don't know what you're going to do." I said, "Neither did I." So, (laughs) I rode. I rode with a a professional cyclist over in South Africa many years ago, and and he rode with you, and he and he told me this story. He said, "Robbie was just different. He had he had the strength to to put himself into position, but he also had the courage to hit gaps that nobody else would hit. Um, Going at those speeds." Do you have to have some sort of screw loose to put yourself into positions that you do? Because if you're doing seventy k's an hour, I don't care if you're riding a motorbike, a push bike, a tricycle. You come off and of wearing a lycra, it's not going to end well. No, there's um, not
0: much left when you.
1: What is what is it that made you different? Because he said some guys can just do it, and and I see that with football. Some like an Andrew Johns, you know, you know, a Nathan Cleary in today's day and age, they just seem to make the game slow down. Did you see things that other people didn't?
0: Yeah, I, I, I've.
1: Or did you just have bigger balls?
0: <laughs> uh, a little bit of both. <laughs> yeah, a little yeah. bit of both. I mean, some of the, a mixture of a bit screw loose, a bit mixture of big balls. The seeing things in slow motion and seeing it like someone a good chess player seeing it a couple of moves ahead, and I, I'd be looking not just at the guy directly in front of me, but the two and three and or you know a bit further up, to see the shape of the peloton and what it was doing and where they were going. Once they went to one side, if they just started going back the other way, knowing it's going to be there, then it's going to come back to a certain spot. So picking, I'm going left because I know it's shut now, but I know they're coming left, they're going back right. And you can see these little things happening. And when you're really, really good, everything slows down. You can you see it and you go, oh, I, know, I know that's where I'm going to go. That's where I'm going through the gap. And then when you're not going well, because when you're going well, you get through every gap. Everything's open. You, you nip yeah. through. You just make it. When you're going bad, everything shuts in front of you, yeah. and you and you start making bad decisions. Yeah. What about you're not you're not lucid. What about
1: studying the riders in the peloton? Like for, for me as a as a league player, a union player, we we spent a lot of time watching film of our opposition, working out what he would do. I can imagine that that would have been important for you in, a, in, in those high-pressure moments, knowing like or looking ahead saying, oh, that's such and such, That's I know he's going to do that, he's going to do that. Was that a big part of yeah, your… Yeah,
0: definitely. Over the years you learn you know which guys are likely to, to go long range, which is too far. So yeah. if you can get in their wheel and they go and you know they're going to go. There was one guy that used to do it often. Yeah. So if you saw him around, you'd go boom, straight on his wheel and like clockwork, there he goes, 300 yeah. metres to go. Yeah, yeah it's and too you, far. You, know, you can only really hold a full sprint for about 200 yeah, yeah, unless you've got a tailwind bit further, but 300 is miles out, so yeah. you get on him. There was another guy I used to race. I'd know that once he came off the back of his lead out, he would swing across to the barrier, so he'd start his sprint and then go straight across the road, mostly to the left. Yeah. So don't get pinned on the left side of the wheel. Don't jump early and be left and he'll you're not past it. him, and he'll he'll close yeah, yeah, you down. Yeah. So hang off him, give him half a length or so until he swings across.
1: Yeah.
0: And go the open side. Yeah. So you just had to wait for certain things to happen. That was the really difficult part about being patient enough, and uh, I, you build that experience from making the mistakes too. Because yeah. I made the mistakes of being on the wrong side of the wheel, overlapping. Of course, he went across and I got shut Token down, out. boxed in, and you run second. You go, I oh, could, it, yeah, could have been so much better.
1: Um, what for, for you, you know, coming into those, those finish shoots, you know, the big sprints, do you go and look at those areas prior to the race? Do you go and study the finish or do you just get, you know, your team director bring you a sheet and say, this is the finish and, you know, you're going to sprint from here or, Is it – because I I imagine they're all different, right?
0: Yeah, they're all different. Most of them you don't get a look at because in the Tour de France, it's point to point. So you'll go from one town to another town that's 200K away. So you can't go there and see it first. Even if you were able to go there in a couple of weeks before the race, you know the road it's on. You also don't know what the barrier setup's going to be. So there could be a great big roundabout. You don't know if you're going to be able to pass both sides or only on the right or only on the left. All these little things, how they're going to set up the barriers for corners – You might see a corner and go, okay, it's pretty straightforward 90-degree corner, but they could change it for stationary TV cameras, for whatever other infrastructure, and it changes the whole thing. So it's sort of get there on the day. You you can have a picture in your mind's eye because you get the race book and it'll have a mud map of the finish. So you'll know there's a right-hander at 300. There's a – bends around to the left from 200 to go and it'll open up. You see the finish from 150, for example. It gives you an idea – and you can make a plan but it's sort of only when you get there you've really got to be able to react to oh, it's slightly different yeah um so you yeah ev- and everybody has the same information sometimes you'll have teams that will send a scout forward and then it's got and it's got better and better over the years i'm talking yeah. about before google maps yeah and street view we didn't yeah. have that <laughs> yeah, now they've that that been handy. now they got street view now there's now there's an app now there's a there's a program called velo viewer you can it's got the entire stage on it you can just zoom in Drop the little Street View icon down, and you Check can see the ho- see the whole lot, and you get a, a great idea of what the finish is. Um,
1: Nobody sh- should be hitting medium strips anymore.
0: Or no, there shouldn't, be, they shouldn't but, be. But but there's always there's there's always something. So that, that's why you have got to go in Plan A, Plan B, but also yep. be able to you know change your mind, change your tactic, or just react in the right yep. way when you, when you get there. And that's the hard thing when you're at nearly 200 heart rate, and you you know the lactic acid's through the roof. You've you, you you Know the lead outs in full steam at 65k mm. an hour, and then you've got to open up your sprint and find the right way. Yeah. That's that's where it comes down to who is actually the best at it, yeah.
1: So, mate, tell me. Um, I think you lived the reverse life of what we used to call Aussie Kim Kleisters. she was <laughs> uh Leighton Hewitt's partner, and she was a you know, we we, we claimed her as our own, yeah. Um, you Lived in Belgium. You married a Belgian woman, Angel- Angelique, and um, you learned the language. You moved there. You lived there, and and you joined their uh, their cycling team, Lotto. Uh, how was that um, lifestyle for you living in Belgium? Is uh, what they call you Belgian Robbie?
0: <laughs> uh, they they called me a half Belgian. <laughs> yeah, um, right. It was only when I beat. The Belgian favourite rider that I'd be the Australian, right. Okay. So when I was racing against Tom Boonen, yeah. Um, if I if I happened to beat Tom, I was the Australian. I was the the you know the opposition, right. Um, but outside of that, it was if I'd win something, that you know write about in the paper the the half Belgian Robbie McEwen, right. And they were, they, but that's really nice to be sort of yeah. the the adopted son yeah. like that because yeah, like you said, I live there. I spoke the language. I rode for a Belgian team. My my wife is Belgian. Um, and yeah, they just embraced me as a like you said, like you had Aussie Kim. It yeah. was I was <laughs> I was Belgian Robbie, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and uh, and it was really really nice. I mean, it 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 has its moments when you when you live in a country where it's one of the major sports. I mean, only football, European football, is bigger. Yeah. So you're there. You're sort of under the microscope all the time. Yeah. You can't escape it, whether you want to or not. And a lot of times it's, it's nice, but you you can't. I'd, I'd be out, say, having dinner with my wife, nice romantic Friday night dinner, and then we get on to dessert, and then inevitably someone who come and say, "Are you sure you should be eating that?" Yeah, really, that <laughs> much. You, you just think about think about your fitness, think about your condition. You got a race coming. Are you sure you should? But it was a joke, but it was always the oh, same yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, of course. I don't know how many times I've heard what? that. Like, are you allowed to eat that? Yeah, okay. So, oh, yeah, so yeah, I've done that- a thousand k this week. I think I'll be
1: right. So the microscope, like. I don't think people in Australia understand what that's like. I mean, I mean, unless you're playing, you're you're a superstar AFL player living in Melbourne, or you're you know a superstar league player living in Sydney, in the heart of those territories, Um, Australians don't really experience that in any way, shape, or form. What it's like to live in that in like the heartbeat of a sport where you are the star of that sport.
0: Yeah, it's and it is quite surreal because you don't. Sort of see yourself like that, and then at moments you do, and then you tell yourself pull your head in. Well, then you um, come home and all your mates just slap you and yeah, go, make shut you up!" You, you come home, <laughs> you, you, see blokes, you see blokes, you see blokes like you or my, you know, my other mates here on the Gold Coast, and you're just you're just one of the boys, and they they take yeah. the piss on you like anybody else, yeah. and it does, and that that's actually nice to to then come back and you see your old schoolmates and they they're still. Yeah, hitting you with the jibes from from school back yeah. in the day, yeah. and um that that keeps you a bit more levelled out.
1: Yeah, mate. It was a uh, um the end of your career. You you jumped from a couple of teams. You ended up with a Russian team. Tell me about the Russian team, Katusha. What what was the move to that about? And because I think that was prior to Green Edge starting, and Green Edge was meant to start, and they sort of got a bit of a false
0: start, and then you sort of found your way over to was it. Katusha or yeah, well, Radio Shack maybe I, I went Katusha first I've been at the Lotto team for a long time and I you know, sort of the headline rider and then Cadell Evans was there as well um and I got to the end of 08 and they they wanted to renew my contract but significantly less and I like that's Pretty disrespectful. Yeah, so it was I, basically I like, am, we don't want you, but I here's am, an offer so, just yeah, in here's, case. Yeah, here's an offer so you go away, Yeah, pretty much. So, But I'd, I'd already been chatting to a bloke. He's a Russian entrepreneur, made his money out of restaurants and brewing, and he introduced the credit card to Russia. Right, okay. Um, so, through so his own bank that he set up, <laughs> just as you do. <laughs> so he, he offered me a contract. and I thought to myself, well, that's more than I've ever earned at any other team. Like, yeah, where do I sign? So I signed for two years with this team with him, and then – all sorts of weird stuff started happening. He got ousted. It was like a it was like a political coup. So he got ousted from the team, and it sort of got taken over by another mob with a the sponsor and and his sort of right-hand henchman, <laughs> right hand um, henchman, who was a former rider. And it all got really messy. It, 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 by it was honestly like the the money was good, but it was like living in a dictatorship. Right. Uh, so it wasn't all that pleasant. And I I won a few races straight up, so it was good, good, good. We're happy with that. We like this. Um, and after five months into the first season, and I'd been winning races and things were looking great, um, then I had an accident in the Tour of Belgium and broke my leg. Um, I hit my knee on a on a barrier in a, a left-hand turn about 40k an hour, rider outside me leaned in. I had to lean in a bit, knee out, and I just clipped the edge of a, one of those big plastic water-filled barriers. They call it a New Jersey, I've since found yeah. out. And um, as I hit it, I, it hit me right on the patella tendon, sort of ruptured the tendon. um, As I kept sort of coming past it, it broke my leg in two places. It broke two big chunks of bone off my tibia. Um, That was the end of the season. I didn't race again for seven, eight months. I had multiple operations. And then one of them actually saved my career. I went and visited a Swedish surgeon who used to operate on players from the EPL on their knees. Yep. And he saved me. That got me riding again. And I – Came back in 2010, still with that same team, got going again, was riding quite well, started winning some races again. Um, And then there was an Aussie team that was about to start and I signed with it and then it fell over, fell over at the last minute. Sponsorship then didn't happen. I don't know if it wasn't existing at all or it was just a bit dodgy. Uh, But it left me high and dry right before Christmas with no team and I didn't want to retire yet. Uh, and I got thrown a lifeline by the Radio Shack teams, an American team. It was Lance's, Lance's when he team. made his comeback. Yeah, they formed a new team, him and Johan Brunil, Um, and they've been following the situation with this team that, that fell over. And um, he off- they offered myself and a South African guy called Robbie Hunter. They offered both of us a contract on not minimum wage, but not much. Yeah, right. But keep us keep us in the sport, which was great. Really yeah. appreciated it. Came out rode quite well. Won a bunch of races during the season. Um, didn't ride the Tour de France that year, but you know, I was going okay. And that got me through until the start of the Green Edge team, our, our Australian pro team yeah. that, that got off the ground. Thanks to Jerry Ryan, who's been a massive supporter of cycling amongst many, 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 yeah. many other things. He's a very generous man. Uh, he funded the team and I got to sign with it for, uh, signed a two-year contract to be with the team, but I was due to race. For One five year, months, five months, and then retire, yeah, and then stay with the team and start helping the young blokes, bit of mentoring, sprint, sort of coaching. And so you weren't the bus and, driver? No, I was sitting in that bus, uh, <laughs> you the bus twenty <laughs> thirteen <2013 laughs> Tour de France when it got stuck <laughs> under the gantry. I was in the bus. Yeah, I said, well, yeah, she'll be right. Yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. Go oh, fit. No. oh shit! <laughs> that was, uh, I went and sat in the back of the bus. <clears throat>
1: plenty of plenty of publicity for Green Greenedge, that's for sure, mate. It. Um, I just, I just want to um, finish. I just want to chat with you about one particular um, race win. It's, it's the first chapter of your book. <coughs> Excuse me, the first chapter of your book. Uh, I think it's called a Canterbury Tale. And I read that, and I read that um, chapter, and I was just. I think I texted you straight after. I said, "Mate, I just want to go ride my bike. I just want to go and train." Like after reading what I read, I, w- I want to put your headphones on. I want to play the finish of this. Because it's it's what it's what the um, the commentator says at right at the end after you've won the race, which sort of sort of brought it all to life for me. Because reading it, the way you explain it was amazing, but to hear it, it was uh, it was pretty impressive.
0: Watch out for Hunter, who's also going to have a dig for Marla World. Robbie Hunter, as he wobbles all over the road now, and they're chasing him down as best they can. But this is going to be a win for Robbie Hunter, or is it? The South African rider is trying to take them to the line here. This will be a tremendous surprise. A wild card team for victory. As Hunter grits his teeth as he gone too soon. Robbie Hunter, Robbie McEwen is coming. McEwen, the acceleration on the middle of the picture. The man off the back is going to win. Robbie McEwen, the man from nowhere. Welcome home. Unbelievable. I don't know, Paul, how on earth does that happen? That's impossible what Robbie McEwen has just done. He was at the back of the main field. With-
1: that's impossible what Robbie McEwen has just done. Um, when I rang you about that, and when I spoke to you about that story and you sort of like just touched on it a bit, I've just got to understand what happened here. I'll let our listeners understand what happened here. You crashed. This is stage one of the 2007 Tour de France. It was your last Tour de France stage victory.
0: Yeah, well, it was. Yeah, yeah, the 07 tour. It started in London. Finished in Canterbury 201K, something like that. And, yeah, I, I was involved in 20 a crash 20, 20K to, go. 20K there was to a, go. It went from a sort of wide road to a narrow road. It's so a real bottleneck and it sort of come to a standstill right in front of me. I was so heavy on the brakes. I was leaning back behind the saddle, a lot of, lot of front brake to get it pulled up and not run into anyone. Problem was that the bloke behind me wasn't doing the same thing. <laughs> he, ran straight, he ran straight in the back of me. And because I was you know, quite heavy on the front brake to get it pulled up, he just hit me and it just flipped me straight over the handlebars. So I went up in the air, came down and I had my hand out so I hurt my wrist and I landed straight on my knee as well, both on the right side. And I was jumping around swearing and, and you know, at that moment you think, well, 20K to go, she's all over, like, forget it.
1: So were you going into that stage with, with the mindset of like stage I was one, the I, to I win. can win this?
0: I was the favourite to win. I was, right. and I, in my own mind, I was the favourite to win, but I know I was from a lot of others too because the year before, I'd won the green jersey. I won three stages. I was, I was just romping in in sprints and I was riding the same. So I was I, I was the favourite to win the stage. But as soon as that happened, you know, immediately you're about a minute behind the field. And at the same time, two of my biggest rivals put their teams on the front of the peloton yeah, Zabon, to and Bonen, I think it was. Uh, Well, actually three of them then, Zabal, yeah. Bonin and Bernati. So yeah. they're riding they're all there. flat out. And I had one teammate had seen what happened and stopped with me. He grabbed my bike, he put the chain back on, checked it out. Yep, good to go. Handed my bike. I'm just going. Ah, oh, forget it. It's just it's over. I mean, I'm swearing and and you know got back on the bike, started to ride, and he's he's riding in front of me. I'm like, well, we're no chance. Like one bloke trying to chase the peloton. we got about a kilometre and a half further, and another another four, five teammates oh, had, waiting for had, had stopped. And waited for us, and they just formed up and started to ride like a team time trial, swapping turns on the front, riding as hard as they could. And there was hardly a moment under 60 k an hour, all the way in. we're like, still 16 k, we're 50 seconds behind, and 14 k, we're 45 seconds behind. I'm like oh, it's not, we're not going to get there. Then they just start making progress, and then finally we got to the back of the the convoy, all the cars behind the peloton, and we got to the sort of in and out from a little bit of slipstream never really sitting behind them for long, but just sort of tracking them a bit. And we started making progress. We got back to the back of the bunch with 5K to go. So my last guy did his last big turn to get us across because then they pull the cars out of the way. Right. And they, well, we're not giving you artificial help. Yep. And they get them out the way. So cross the last bit. So I get there. I'm on my own. I got two more teammates in the bunch. One of them's Cadell. He's doing his thing and trying to ride for GC. Another one, they'd told him, you stay there. You might have to do the sprint if Robbie doesn't make it back. I never saw him. I come through the bunch because when I got to the back of the bunch, there was oh, 80, 5 100, 100 riders. To go, 180 riders still left in the in bunch and I had to get past in 5K. And there was like left-hander, right-hander, left-hander, roundabout, roundabout, roundabout. Like there's all these moments that it sort of props and, and the road gets a bit blocked and, you, and I just – from the moment I got on the back, I went, right, caution to the wind at every single opportunity, hit every gap, just do – do anything you have to to get to the front. So I was just going going through little gaps. Normally I'd even apologise because it makes blokes jump. You just shoot through a gap, and I was just straight through. But I remember getting to one point where there was sort of nowhere to go, and there were these two Spanish blokes, two Basque blokes actually from the Uscatel team in in Orange. For those who remember the the, the team that used to race in the Tour, and um and and this bloke uh, his, his name was uh, Miguel and. I just thought, "You go, hey Miguel!" Like I did my best <laughs> Spanish accent, <laughs> and he just thought, "Oh, it's one of my mates." And he sort of moved, and I just went boom straight oh, through. Really? I reckon in one of the roundabouts, I passed fifteen blokes in a roundabout. Yeah, right. Just came in hot up the inside, and just almost like the no brakes. Yeah, <laughs> and blokes were like, "Oh shit!" They give you that tiny bit of room, and I just shot straight through. I got my way back, and I, I reckon at what point did you? To think to go, I was about twenty fourth. That's miles out of it. At What point did you think I can win this? 100 meters to go because we, we came in there was, there was there was a sort of a long range move by Robbie Hunter from about 4,50, 500 meters to go, something like that. and a lot of blokes reacted to it and sort of went with it so they made a big acceleration. I just kept at my little tempo the same tempo without making a, a, another effort. So it lost me a couple of spots, but I sort of stayed a bit fresher I think. and then I waited for him. he sort of got to his moment where he died in the ass. And then there was another surge coming forward because nobody wanted to go forward at that moment because it was too far to go in your sprint. And everyone was sort of hesitating like, oh, when to go, when to go. And I just sort of followed the wheels coming from behind on that surge, come around the outside. I bumped one guy. I didn't even feel it at the time. I didn't know I'd bumped him until I watched the video. Um, and I just I came around the outside and it was when I got to there, I went, you can actually win this. And I there was a very slight left bend. You couldn't see the finish until 150 out. Yeah. And cyclists have this thing. It's like it's hard to sprint for something you can't see, but you should be sprinting from about 200 to go. Yeah. So coming into that bend, I'd, already, I'd, I'd hit, hit I'd gone long with momentum up and over the top. As we came out around that bend, I was going from outside to inside at full speed where the others then saw me. They made their kick, but they were going inside to out. So they sort of yeah. crossed and missed the wheel, and I was about five lengths in front. So nobody got slipstream you ended and I was up winning
1: going, I, by about 3 lengths.
0: Yeah, and I was coming to the line and I, I, I sort of just you know keep 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 going, keep going, keep going and I for a moment I started to think like you're going to win. I was like, "Shut up, keep going, keep going." <laughs> and then I got I, I just I could not believe that I was about to cross the line. You get to that moment and you just go, "No way." And I I, I was so surprised, almost forgot to sit up and sort of, you know, you do the victory celebration, hands in yeah, the air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, don't forget, Chick, What do you you, know, you? you did it. At, you did it about
1: ten meters past yeah, the line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, realise, like, so I, you I think
0: you think a moment like that, you should be doing something special, something like pretty cool. I was just complete. Like you see, if you see my face in a photo of it, just complete disbelief. Yeah. Oh, like one of the most special victories in your career. Yeah, it? but that, that'd be the most special because it it was like an adventure win. It had everything. Yeah. Had the ups and the downs that I was, you know down and out, lost. I was on the canvas. You buy
1: your team a drink that night? And, uh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: More <laughs> than, it, more than yeah. one.
1: It must have felt good coming around that corner and seeing five of your teammates there waiting for yeah, you. Yeah, that, that, that was really nice. and To work for yeah. you. To get and after,
0: it became really emotional after the stage just because it gave me a like, you know, lump in the throat when I thanked them at the toasting while we were having champagne that night, just about the, the level of effort they put in the commitment and just that we did it against the odds when everything was against us. And, and we made it and I, and I i didn't even have to make an effort of saying we yeah and our win because yeah. it, it was and that it's that's the one for me is the most special because it was the most um sort of collective win
1: yeah I don't, I don't think there's any better feeling um well well if there's one thing that I miss about playing sport um, team sport um is is that moment just after you've played and you just battered and you put everything on the line, and you've got the victory. There's no press around. There's no, they're not in the dressing rooms yet, and it's just you and your mates. Yep. That's just – I miss that. I, if you could bottle that and sell it, it'd be worth millions. Oh, it would be worth trillions. But yeah. that must have been one of those moments for you where you just think, we did it, boys. Yep. You know, like, it's uh- – S-
0: Sitting in the team bus, we were then – we went from the end of that stage in Canterbury, and we are on the team bus onto, into the, the Channel Tunnel. And yep. pop out the other side in in France. We were on the bus for hours, yeah, but it was the best trip. Yeah, I bet. I mean, we weren't on the we weren't on the cans, but, <laughs> but, but but you do have a glass of but, wine after the after yeah, yeah. I mean, so. we 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 had a beer and then we had you know, dinner. We had, we had champagne and a glass of wine, and um, yeah, that was, that was one of the the best moments of my career. Yeah,
1: oh, it's pretty special, mate. I mean, you, you had so many amazing moments throughout that career. Um, if you had to pass a message on to young athletes nowadays, I, I look at athletes now, young athletes coming up, and I and I feel I feel I don't I feel a little sorry for them. I think there are so many distractions in the world today for young athletes that we didn't have, um, but I don't think the work ethic has changed. I don't think what's required has changed. But what what, what advice would you give young up and coming athletes now, Robbie, who are trying to to make it, who are trying who who feel like they're not getting anywhere, or they, you know, just in that sort of funk about, you know, How do I break that ceiling?
0: The hard work will pay off. It re- it really will. And when you're doing, when you know deep inside that you are doing everything you can, because there's people out there who go, "I'm do- I'm doing it all. I'm doing everything they they tell me to do. I'm do-. But they know. Are it. you really? <laughs> yeah. Are you really doing everything? Yeah. And when you are doing really everything. Then all the answers will be there for you. Then you can answer the question: Am I good enough? Am I? Am I a born star? But you, because you can well, be a born, you can be a born star and never really quite make it because you're not prepared to put in the work because you think you're a born star and you think you have got all this natural ability. But you can be a person with it, born not with all the natural ability in the world, but some with a whole lot of hard work and dedication and thinking your way through it. Yeah, you can. You can make it. Isn't that
1: true? I love what you just said then. Um, when you actually are doing all the work and you know you're doing all the work. Because everybody
0: a, knows when they're not. That's when
1: the answers will come. Yeah. Because until then, it's always like a, you're always you're always wondering.
0: Yeah. Don't ask yourself the question when you haven't done everything to provide the answer.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, it's a great way to finish off. Robbie, thanks so much for coming in and being a part no of worries. the blood bin, mate. Pleasure. Appreciate it. No blood at all. No, none. <laughs>
0: Thank you so much for joining us on the blood bin for Rogers Sports Management. Make sure to like, subscribe and find us on all the social media channels. Just search for Rogers Sports Management on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. We're also on TikTok. And we out.